Drafting Archetypes is brought to you by Game Grid Lehigh. Game Grid Lehigh is an amazing place to buy and sell Magic the Gathering singles. Whether you're building a new cube or crafting your new constructed deck, Game Grid Lehigh is the place to do it. Got a draft coming up with some friends? Buy some seal product here and get it quick. So click the referral link in the description to help out the show. And don't forget to use the code DRAFTPRO10 to get 10% off on your next order at gglehigh.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm excited to get into our first look at a new set. Uh, Brothers War will be having its pre-releases this weekend. I'll be playing uh, in Salt Lake City in the uh, Magic Summit for my pre-release, which will be a large, hopefully very fun tournament, but trying to prepare everyone for whatever their first experience with Brothers War is, whether that's a pre-release or whether that won't be until uh, it hits Magic on uh, Mag- until it hits Arena and Magic Online next week. I have already played a little bit with this set despite the fact that uh, it's not available in print yet. I knew someone who put a, a proxy cube together um just uh by printing off proxies of all the cards in the set and uh we drafted and built some sealed uh pools with that so i've played a handful of games done a couple drafts built a couple of seals so i've had some experience with the cards but not all that much so just to give you an idea of how much grounding there is for what i'm talking about going over the the normal groundwork the themes for the set uh, Blue-white soldiers, white-black is like cheap creatures, like specifically creatures that cost three or less. Some like unearth and recursion and graveyard synergies. Uh, White-red has some soldier stuff, uh, some go-wide stuff, some unearth stuff. I think Wizards says that it's about unearth, but I found it was kind of more of a kind of just like classic red-white aggro with some tokeny stuff. Green-white, Wizard says, is Artifact Fall. I think of it more as scaling creatures. Uh, Some of the artifact, like the uncommon Artifact Fall, green-white signpost card, puts a plus one, plus one counter on a creature when an artifact enters. And there are some other ways to buff up your creatures and protect your creatures. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, but... uh, I I think of this kind of as like a -a Build-A-Bear, like Protect the Queen go tall type archetype personally at the moment blue black is draw an extra card per turn there are stuff that trigger uh when you draw your second card there's also a decent amount of like looting effects that do that and then some graveyard value there so there's kind of like graveyard value scattered all over the place there's just a lot of that in this set so it ends up being a sub theme for a bunch of decks blue red is basically prowess uh blue green is ramp red black is sacrifice Black green is kind of your basic graveyard nonsense. And red green, I think Wizards calls Power Stone mid-range. I think of it as just kind of like stuff, which is basically how I feel about red green in almost every format. I don't feel like they've generally been great at defining an identity for red green, but whatever. So those are like the, you know, classic color pair stated archetypes. But I don't know how much those are really going to matter. I think that this is a set where uh, a lot of decks will be monocolor or heavily one color. 
and splashing is very easy. So I don't know that you'll strictly be following the, uh, you know, I'm like nine, eight mana base, two color decks. Uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of, I'm just like all the different synergies that exist in blue and almost all of my cards are blue. And then I'm splashing a couple of strong cards that work in my deck. Um, or the same thing for other colors or just like I have a good amount of like fixing and I'm just kind of doing whatever. I, I think this is going to be a set where there are, you know, monocolor decks, two color decks, multicolor decks, and the archetypes are going to blend a lot. Uh, there's also just like a lot of, you know, overlaps where like a lot of these archetypes, the statement about what they are doesn't say, hey, this uses the graveyard. Hey, this uses artifact ball, but they do. And uh, like any of the color pairs can care differing amounts about uh, how many artifacts they're playing, different amounts about how well they use power stones in general and how much they care about making them. So I think that you're going to be kind of finding a lot of emergent synergies outside of the stated goals for your color pair. Um, which is uh, a great sign for me, of course. I think that makes the format interesting and replayable and stuff like that. But I do think that this is a format that's like deep in that way, where you're not always slotting neatly into a prescribed two-color archetype. So like when I was drafting, I found that I would want to focus on one primary color, stick to taking cards in that color or artifacts until I saw a really, really strong card, take that really strong card, but then don't take that as a sign that, okay, now I'm like a strong card of another color. And then don't take that as a sign that like, okay, now I'm these two colors. Maybe I'm just splashing that strong card. And I keep focusing on the color that I was originally taking. Now, the number of colored pips in the cards that you're playing matters a lot in this kind of format. So uh, if I find, you know, if I'm just like going along drafting blue, and then I get like the blue red uncommon, uh, the um, better uh, young pyromancer. It's a little harder to cast. Then I would take that, but that wouldn't solidify me in blue red because I can splash that pretty easily in a blue deck. And so, on the other hand, if I get the uh, like red red one sorcery rare that uh, destroys all cheap artifacts or does three damage to all creatures, that's a really strong card. If I want to play that. I'm going to need like an actual high number of red sources. And so that would put me more solidly into red than something that I could splash. So you want to, you know, if you're like, it's much easier to just kind of dabble in cards that have a single pip and potentially continue to focus on mon monocolor or focus on whatever you're doing rather than shifting your deck dramatically and committing to a second color. The reason, of course, that it's so good to focus on staying a single color here is that there's an uncommon cycle of cards like Corrupt. And uh, if you can get a lot of value out of those because, you know, 13 to 17 of your lands are that type, then those cards are really good. And they're uncommon they're very narrow in terms of what deck they go in. So it's not that hard to get multiple copies of the same one uh, if you find yourself in an open lane. Um, and those can be pretty transformative. I've been asked a lot about just like how good are power stones or whatever. They're good. Uh, they cost very little to make. Like they're the cards that 
make them just do it pretty much for free. Uh, pretty similar to making food, I guess. There are a lot of different ways to use them. You can just cast artifacts. You can use activated abilities. You can sacrifice them. You can filter the mana through um, two mana common uh, like prophetic prism variants. That's a little bit worse at doing it, but gets you there if you have a bunch of, artif- of uh, power stones. Energy refactor. I mentioned sacrificing them. So it's really easy to get value from a power stone. Power stones might suggest that you would want to play more big stuff and that the format would be about ramping and playing huge things and all of these like prototype artifacts would be getting cast and so everyone's just playing 10 times and it plays like Rise of the Eldrazi or something. I don't think that that's really what's going on most of the time. I think that uh, a lot of the archetypes are pretty aggressive and it's really important that the prototype cards have this prototype mode where you can cast them for not very much mana because most of your games, you have to do that. And then some of the games that go long, you get to cast it with kicker as this big thing. While the power stones let you sometimes do big stuff, I think there's a lot of pressure on you if you're trying to do that. I think the format's pretty proactive, pretty aggressive. You can certainly build controlling decks that play a long game. I, uh, drafted a deck that was legitimately milling people out with actual millstone. But, you know, my my opponents were trying to attack me while I was doing that. Um, And you need to be prepared for that. So this this is not like battlecruiser magic. This is more about synergies and having a plan. And a lot of the plans are aggressive, but it's, uh, you know, kind of all over the place. So some things to, that point to it being aggressive, the expensive cast can, stuff can be casted at discount with prototype. Uh, Unearth is an inherently aggressive mechanic. It plays out very similar to Decayed Zombies, where uh, your cards just kind of give you this extra value that exists in the form of making your opponent lose some life sometimes because you get this free extra attack. And so Midnight Hunt was a format where kind of life totals were just a little bit lower because Decayed Zombies were around and Unearth plays out pretty similarly to that. Also, they're just like good, aggressive creatures and combat tricks and stuff. So really that's the overview. That's the big picture stuff. The format is fast, but highly variable in terms of what your plans are. There are theoretically stated two color archetypes, but you're not always drafting them. And you can play, you know, any number or combination of colors in pretty interesting ways. And there are a lot of like crossover synergies in the different places. Uh, all of that looks really good to me. Narrow in a little bit and talk about just like noteworthy commons, uncommons, and uh, uncommon retro artifacts. Just things that I think stand out that you want to keep in mind or look for uh, from what I've seen. Lauren's Escape and Gaia's Gift are two common tricks. Lauren's escape is a single white instant. A creature gets, target creature gets uh, hexproof and indestructible scry one. Gaia's gift is one in a green, put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature, give it hexproof, indestructible, trample, and I think reach. Those two cards allow green white to uh, really invest in stacking up uh, counters on a single creature presumably one that already has some good keywords, and then protect it uh, as you invest in it, 
get to a situation where your opponent has to try to answer it, and then you get to answer their answer at uh, mana advantage, and that's that's the game. You get to play kind of this heroic plan um, or whatever, you know, build a bear, protect the queen archetype you want to think of it as. And then, of course, Blanchwood Armor, the uncommon, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, is a great way to go really big on something. The fact that green-white can do that pretty well means that the creatures that have good keywords like flying, trample, uh, especially, jumping ahead again, the uncommon double strike prototype creature uh, are really, really good base bodies to try to build on. So I think that's something to be looking for in green-white in addition to the artifact fall stuff. Mightstone's animation is a three and a blue aura enchant artifact. Uh, enchanted artifact becomes a 4-4 four, four, uh, draw card. That's a, a common. Um, so if you have a power stone or an Icker Wellspring or energy refractor or any kind of random, you know, artifact that's just sitting there, then you basically get a 4-4 four, four haste cantrip for four mana, which is not a normal common. I think that Mightstone's animation is a really big deal. Like, if you're blue, you want to be able to take advantage of that. And so you want to prioritize ways to make sure that you're going to have an artifact in play so that you can put that in your deck. Because, you know, you can think of it as, I can only play this if I have some kind of artifact in play. So all of your, like, artifacts that are hanging out in play that you can enchant this with are like your sources of mana for casting this 4-4 cantrip. So if you have like four cards that make power stones, your base and no other artifacts, you're basically splashing a 4-4 cantrip off those four sources to cast it, which are those four power stone making cards. You could splash a 4-4 draw card uh, off four sources if those four sources, you know, lead to having a power stone early enough. But uh, it's, you know, stronger, the more reliable it is, of course. I think blue really wants to prioritize and just keep in mind whether you have Mightstone's animation or not, like early in a draft, that this is a common that you might see later and uh, it's a really good card to take advantage of. One of the best and easiest ways to do that is with Stern Lesson, which is two in a blue instant, draw two cards, discard a card, make a power stone. So there's a nice natural curve there where, uh, you know, on turn three, you improve your hand and you make a power stone, and then on turn four, you animate it and draw a card. That's a little common synergy to look for. And then the stern lesson is discarding a card, and so you can try to discard a card that has unearth, for example, um, so you can get a little bit more value out of the discard. And then this uh, package slots neatly into the draw two cards archetype, where if you played, um, say, a Thopter mechanic, one of the better uncommons, two mana, two, one, that gets a plus one, plus one counter whenever you draw your second card in a turn, uh, and then makes a Thopter when it dies, you know, kind of the dream would be to play a Thopter mechanic, and then you Stern Lesson to trigger your Thopter mechanic to make it grow, then next turn you might Stern's animation, which also draws a card, which would also grow your Thopter mechanic. An example of a nice little synergy that would exist there, and uh, just with all blue cards. 
Next up, uh, black Gixian Infiltrator. That's uh, one and a black for a 2-1 that gets a plus one, plus one counter whenever you sacrifice something has impressed me. There are a lot of ways to trigger it really, really incidentally that don't really cost you anything. Uh, Chromatic Star, Mishra's Bauble, Bitter Reunion. There are just like a lot of artifacts that and enchantments and stuff that sacrifice themselves um, completely, like just as part of their basic functionality. And then there are also a bunch of artifacts that you want to that don't cost you very much to sacrifice to something else like uh, power stones and all the various cantrip artifacts. And then, you know, black red has this whole uh, sacrifice synergy stuff. There are a bunch of cards that work with it. So like power stones, emergency weld, that's uh, one in a black uh, Ray is dead, make a one, one token. You, then you can sacrifice that one, one token pretty easily um, with cards like Thraxodemon or Penrigan Strongbull. Thraxodemon is uh, one in a black, two, two, you can spend three and tap and sacrifice something to draw a card. And then the strong bull is a two, three for two and a red. You can spend one and sacrifice an artifact to give it plus one, plus one until end of turn and deal one damage to your opponent. Red, black sacrifice in general feels really well supported in this format uh, with all the power stones and cantrip artifacts and artifacts that sack themselves and unearth giving you like easy access to stuff to sacrifice. So I, I think that, you know, we've seen red black sacrifice in a lot of formats. This is among the best that I've seen it supported. I think it's a really good deck here. Um, I think that similar to like AFR where uh, price of loyalty was a really high pick great card in red black decks i think uh the four mana threat in here i don't remember the name it steals a creature until end of turn and makes a power stone is going to uh be very good in red black energy refractor has just impressed me in general it has synergies all over the place that's the um, prophetic prism variant two mana artifact etb draw a card and then you can spend two mana to get one mana of any color it makes it really easy to splash it triggers all of your draw an extra card things triggers all of your prowess things gives you an art artifact for might stones animation and washes your power stones into real mana in a lot of formats value prophetic prism very highly i've been following that through with energy refractor and refractor and i haven't been disappointed there are three common assembly workers, the like different Urza lands. I don't think they're very good, but the card self-assembler, uh, four mana, four, four, that searches your library for an assembly worker is an uncommon in the like retro sheet and it can find all of them. So when I first saw self-assembler, I was used to it in its previous format where it basically only found copies of itself. And... I was like, oh, this is going to be really hard to use as an uncommon, but you don't need to get two self-assemblers for them to do anything. You can find one of the other assembly workers. Also, I think there's a rare assembly worker that is like really, really strong and worth noting that like if you take that, then you can tutor for that with self-assembler. And I think it like helps all your assembly workers. So you can try to play more of that package, maybe, although that might be a trap. Noteworthy uncommons. Great Desert Prospector. This is... uh four and a white for a three two that when it enters the battlefield makes a power stone for each creature you control this is you know pretty explosive if you have like the artifact fall stuff i think it might actually be like really good in white red 
where you can sacrifice the power stones for value, um, especially if you have Penrigan Strongbull, the Minotaur that can sac artifacts to get plus one, plus one and do a damage to your opponent. And then you can cast your big prototype stuff. I, I think it's like just generally pretty good. Obviously, the most important thing is how many power stones you're making out of it, which is a function of how wide you're going, which I think like a lot of the white decks are pretty into going wide. So... I think that card's pretty good. Meticulous Excavation, that's the one white mana enchantment. You can spend two and a white uh, to return a card, uh, non-land, re return some set of cards to your hand, um, but you can only do it during your turn. So you can't use it to like dodge removal most of the time because your opponent can just kill your stuff on their turn, but you can use it to like get value out of your ETBs. And also it's worded specifically to work with Unearth. So if you have a creature die and then you unearth it and then you attack with it, you can pick it up to put it back in your hand rather than exiling it to start its life cycle over. In general, I think this card is really fun, but a little bit clunkier and more mana intensive than like natural white decks in this format will want. You know, it's not hard to turn this into like a one mana enchantment that can spend five mana to draw a card, but five mana to draw a card is just not very good. The exception here, of course, is if you have a lot of power stones then it's a good way to like turn those power stones into giving you uh, value every turn. But I think for the most part, it's going to be like more fun than powerful. Thopter mechanic, uh, I talked about earlier, the two one that grows uh, and then makes the thopter and it dies. It's just an amazing card. Like it scales bigger such that your opponent has to answer it. But when they answer it, it's a really profitable exchange for you because you get a thopter and they probably spent more mana than you did. The Corrupt Cycle I've talked about, it's really important to like know about it and keep it in mind. It really informs a lot about how you're drafting, that you uh, sometimes are going to want to maximize those uncommons. And it's also worth noting that Corrupt in particular, more than the other ones, is great with Elsewhere Flask. Those cards were originally together in Shadowmoor or Eventide, or maybe both together. I don't exactly remember. But the combo of like Elsewhere Flask, turn all your lands into swamps, Corrupt for a lot is nice to set up. The reason it's particularly good with Corrupt is the white one uh, is a removal spell that like, you know, can often kill what you need to kill without Elsewhere Flask. And you don't really want to make this big combo to turn on a one mana removal spell. Uh, and then Blanchwood Armor and the red 04 that gets power equal to your mountains like those are things that stay in play and turning them on for a single turn's not that big. And then the blue one is also really good. That draws a card for each island you control and then you discard two. But I think that that's like, you know, combo to draw a bunch of cards is less impressive to me than combo to drain for a whole bunch because drain for a whole bunch is more likely to kill your opponent. Whereas like drawing a bunch of cards is good, but drawing like a ton of cards rather than a good number of cards is not that likely to make the difference. Like it's usually like if you can live to draw a bunch of cards and then cash those cards, you're going to win the game, whether you drew, you know, four cards or seven cards. Giant Cindermaw and Horn Stoneseeker. Giant Cindermaw is two and a red for a 4-3 trample. Players can't gain life. No drawbacks unless you're trying to gain life. Just a three mana 4-3 trample at Uncommon. And then the Stoneseeker is one and a red for a 2-1 menace. Uh, ETB, make a tap power stone. When it dies, sacrifice a power stone. But if you've already sacrificed that power stone, no disadvantage. Unless you have another power stone, but regardless. Both of those cards are just like really good rate aggressive creatures just on their face. 
And I think they just kind of point, they're good examples of like how aggressive the format can be. Blanchwood armor, I've talked about a bit when I was talking about corrupts and in green, white in general, I think like, uh, you know, Blanchwood armor with Gaia's gift is a very relevant combo. So you like Blanchwood armor will give your creature, you know, plus seven, seven or something uh, in the like late game when you're trying to kill someone, you know, assuming you're mono green and you have seven forests in play. At that point, your opponent's basically in mandatory chump block mode, assuming you've managed to like stick Blanchard armor on a creature. They haven't dealt with it. And so having a trick that can give trample will just kill them. If you're like, well, they haven't dealt with my Blanchard creature yet, they're obviously not going to. And alternatively, you can just on turn five, play Blanchard armor with the guy's gift in hand. If your opponent tries to kill your creature so that you don't get to like hit him with the Blanchard armor, you cast Guy's Gift, you save your creature, and it has Trample. They take a bunch of damage that turn, and now they need to find another answer to your creature that now has a lot of toughness. I think, you know, Blanchwood Armor is a reason to be mono green, and then if you have it, I think Guy's Gift is generally a good card that, like, combos with Blanchwood Armor to just put your opponent in a lot of different tight spots. So I think it's something to, like, think about prioritizing if you find yourself in that, like, heavy green space. Combat Thresher is the name of the uh, double strike uncommon with uh, prototype, um, and it also draws a card when it enters. So it's um, I don't remember like its stats on the expensive version, but for two and a white, you get a one-one double strike that draws a card when it enters. So you're already basically in like you know better than like two-one ETB draw a card for three, um, which you know we all know is a pretty solid baseline. But then the fact that it's actually double strike, so any pumping you do is doubled. As I talked about, green-white uh, is very interested in putting plus one, plus one counters on this thing. So I think that's, a uh, you know, as far as, like, uncommons to look for that would put you into an archetype. I don't think you have to play green if you're playing this thing or anything, but it's a decent, you know, semi-signpost to make you think about going that way. Levitating Statue, that's a two-mana artifact with uh, flying, but it is not a creature, just a two-mana artifact with flying. And then for two-mana, you can turn it into a 1-1, and uh, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you put a plus one, plus one counter on it. This might be obvious, but that card has a really high ceiling and a really low floor. If you can, like, it's possible to build decks that have, draw a lot of cards, have very few creatures, and have a lot of power stones. So you're drawing more stuff to trigger it more, all your spells are putting counters on it, and you don't need to leave mana around to animate it because you have power stones to do it for you. And if all of that stuff is in place, this thing is amazing. You end up with like a giant flyer pretty quickly and it incidentally like dodges sorcery speed creature removal. Of course, there's plenty of artifact removal, but it protects itself a little bit. Um, but if you're, you know, not doing those things, if you have to spend mana for it and you're not casting that many non-creatures, it's horrible. An example of the kinds of cards you can be drafting around that, like, you know, it sort of slots into, like, blue-red spells or whatever, but it's, uh, you know, a little bit more specialized, I guess. Noteworthy retro artifacts at Uncommon. The most significant part of the retro artifacts at Uncommon to me is there are 18 of them total, and six of them, Chromatic Star, Elsewhere Flask, Icker Wellspring, Mistress Bauble, and Soul Guide Lantern, all, like either sacrifice to draw a card or draw a card on ETB. So these things are like pretty accessible, 
like widely present. There are a lot of them just kind of glue for a lot of archetypes. Uh, prowess, sacrifice, the draw two cards stuff, artifact fall. So when you're just like looking at the set, if you don't think about the retros, uh, all of that stuff looks a lot less supported than it is. So these are things that, you know, aren't really like make or break for any deck, but you really want to uh, keep them in mind and prioritize taking them when there's not something great for your deck, because almost no matter what you're doing, you know, there are just synergies all over the place for these things. Burnished Heart uh, is another one that I think is pretty significant. That's the three mana 2-2. You can spend three mana and sacrifice it to search for two lands and put them into play tapped, two basics. That's another good way to splash or to power up the corrupt cycle. Millstone, I think, is kind of interesting. Like, the format's mostly too fast for it to be, like, great or anything. But it's a good mana sink for power stones because I do think Millstone... Uh, like kill someone in a reasonable time frame if you don't have to find a way to like commit two lands to activating it every turn. That's a nice one to look for is, uh, you know, basically I think Millstone is not general purpose good, but if you have a lot of power stones and you're not really sure what to do with them and you're playing like kind of a controlling deck, I do think trying to kill your opponent with Millstone is like valid. That's everything I noted to talk about from my uh, first experience. Happy to move on to fielding any questions here. As always, want to pause, uh, give chat time to enter any questions they've had. Again, if you said something earlier, if it's still on your mind, uh, just type it now so that I know it's still present. Also, I want to thank my newest patron, Aqua. Thanks for the support. And if anyone else is interested in supporting the podcast, getting access to uh, the notes or whatever else as we get into Brothers War, uh, be sure to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. All right, moving into questions. It seems like there are a lot of uh, the retro artifacts are combo pieces. How many of the games, if any, turned into building around those versus building uh, around inset cards? I'm not sure exactly which cards you're getting at. I haven't studied the rare, sh- the like rare retros super closely. Um, I didn't see any games that like someone set up an actual infinite combo or something. I think that, uh, you know, there are a bunch of weird little things like Foundry Inspector, I think is the name of the three mana three, two, uh, that makes all of your artifacts cost one less. And, uh, that was just like, oh, okay, this is a good creature. If I'm heavy artifact, like there's the, um, choose a creature type lord that's a creature type the lord of that creature type i drafted it and i was like oh this will work with my constructs and then oh maybe it'll actually work with my soldiers and then i actually ended up just not playing enough creatures to play it altar of dementia that's not a combo piece that just kills someone by itself in limited it's like a really strong card because libraries aren't that big and your creatures have a decent amount of power and you just like do it whenever you know one of them would die or whatever Aetherflux Reservoir, that's never going to happen. <laughs> you, you don't cast like six spells a turn in limited or whatever. It's it's not literally ever going to happen, but I wouldn't really like try to make it happen. Um, Cloud Key, I don't know what you would do with that. Staff Domination, I don't think there's like a Metal Worker or anything. I think it's a Mana Sync more than a combo card. Predictions on the Killer Common in this set. Um, I talked about commons that I thought were highlights. I don't think there's anything like you know more than that i think they're just different like great ones for different archetypes 
Did you cast the prototype cost every time or sometimes full cost? I didn't play with a ton of prototype cards. I think I saw prototype costs used more than full costs, but I think full costs not literally never. I think the flying equip will overperform. Plus one on flying is a game changer. Even two drops can be huge threats. Power stones help reduce uh, these equip costs big time. So I think equipment in general will have a boost. Interesting consideration. Um, I agree that plus one power does make flying a much bigger deal. And yeah, power stones to help pass equipment matters. A lot of the equipment I think is like pretty far from good enough. Like the um, equipment, the, the white thing that gives plus two plus oh and has like equip soldiers for one white, I think is really bad basically no matter what, but it's possible that some of the equipment will work out. Swift foot boots, I guess, notably, especially if you're trying to like Blanchard arm or something. Question about how much of a card is a power stone worth? I don't think that's a super useful way to think about it. Like when you were drafting Eldraine, did you think of like a food as a fraction of a card? I, I think it's more in that space. Uh, like it does good stuff. You can have synergies with it, but there's no real reason to try to convert everything to card advantage. Most recent sets have been more popper than Prince after playing what you've played so far. Where does this feel on that spectrum? I'm not very invested in that spectrum in general. I guess the answer is there are a lot of really strong uh, like rares and mythics and the existence of the retro sheet means that there are just more different ones that you could see and more open per pack. But the fact that the set is pretty synergistic and pretty aggressive means that there are other ways to win and decent like uh, counterplay or just like games will end before someone draws it. So I don't know. Do power stones affect your mana balance at all? Do you ever go down to 16 lands because you have like eight power stone makers? So I don't know that the Power Stones specifically were that big of a deal, but I did play fewer than 17 lands, I think, in all of my decks due to um, less the Power Stones and more just the amount of card draw. There are so many cantrip artifacts, and I played blue a decent amount with like the draw two cards, discard a card, make a Power Stone, and I just felt like it was pretty easy to hit land drops because of all the little cantrip stuff. Two questions, both about one removal. One, disenchant looks good, but how often have you felt the red-green sorcery artifact destruction is relevant slash needed? I, I mean, if you're talking about like the three mana kill an artifact, uncounterable destroy an artifact, draw a card sorcery, uh, it felt pretty good to me. I killed a thopter and drew a card once with it, which wasn't amazing, but was nice. And I uh, killed a Phyrexian processor with it, which seemed pretty important. I think that, uh, you know, this is a card where, a format where most of your shatter stuff should mostly be played. The four mana sorcery speed kill an artifact enchantment or flying creature in green. I had an argument with uh, Caleb about. I'm in general a little skeptical on four mana uh, sorcery speed removal, but, you know, it, in particular in Sealed, he pointed out that, like, most of the bombs die to this and exiling is important because like some of them have unearth and stuff and you know it's a bomb heavy format because of the uh retro sheet so i i think it's you know you probably want to play it more often than not at least in sealed less sure in draft i said as small removal like disfigure medium removal like disfigure and then there's the deal three at sorcery make a power stone and then there's the deal five do two damage to your opponent and then there's hard removal 
Have the games made any of them seem like they don't line up well? No, I think that uh, all of them have their place. I think that there are, you know, a lot of big creatures and small creatures. I think that, you know, if you're playing a format that involves sideboarding, you might find certain ones line up worse against certain opponents. But I think that, um, you know, you're going to have targets for all your stuff and you're generally going to be happy to be able to answer things. How do you feel sealed is going to play out? Can you splash a lot even without duels? So evolving wilds is a common and you also have chromatic sphere at uncommon and energy refractor and a lot of card draw. And so I felt like, you know, it wasn't that hard to uh, splash a card if you wanted I saw a lot of decks that were like base one color splashing two other colors or something. I, I don't know what else to say about how Sealed's going to play out. I think that um, like with Draft, there are a lot of different ways to build it. Do you think you'll be playing any five color decks in this format? I think that Evolving Wilds pushes pretty strongly to three rather than five. And Energy Refractor, I think, is a high enough priority that it'll be hard to get a lot of them. So I think it's uh, like with star and elsewhere flask and stuff a lot easier to splash like a single random off color card or something rather than like dedicated i'm just playing everything so i think five color is going to be pretty rare main deck naturalized format yes very much there are a million artifacts in the format it's like not a question it's you know like yeah naturalizes just straight up good removal for seal do you have an impression of which colors will tend to be most powerful i don't i didn't play with enough variety to uh really have a sense there did you have fun playing with the cards because they were new or because they were fun i mean i don't know that it's fair to expect that i would be able to differentiate there but i've talked about a lot of the things that i think lead to good play experiences and limited in general i think it's going to be pretty good i think with so many of the artifact creatures having a power stone tax can turn them into a power stone or bust dynamic a lot of five drop artifacts for instance seem pretty useful if your deck can consistently create a power stone on three i don't have any real thoughts on that. I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, about Power Stone Tax. Initial thoughts on the crop style cards playing monocolor. They're good. They're a good reason to play monocolor, and I don't think it's very hard to play monocolor. Best three colors to prioritize. Not something I'm prepared to answer at this point, if ever. How many naturalizes would be too many? To, that's just a how many removal spells is too many question for the most part. I, I don't think it's something you're going to need to worry about. How many lands? 17 or 18? I usually played 15 or 16. Prediction for highest game and hand win rate common for each color. I don't think I'm interested in trying to predict that right now. Follow-up question 15 or 16 with hand smoother or no? I was playing in paper, so no hand smoother. A lot of the artifact creatures seem overpriced with the expectation that power stones will be available. I don't think that's exactly true. I think that a lot of the other, I think most of them like have prototype. You know, you, you get to like count power stones as part of your mana base appropriately for your curve and the number of artifacts you're playing and like you know whether you draw a power stone is not that different from like whether you draw another land or whatever so it, it doesn't feel all that like you know high variance to me or anything it's both a land and defender that can dump mana to surveil is your comment on it being uh somewhat an aggro format enough to mean those should be avoided i uh have played both of them i i think that there are a lot of decks that are pressuring you but again that doesn't mean that you can't play a defensive deck 
The common that lets you surveil in particular is a 3-3 defender if you're playing blue and you have an island, and that is a good way to stop your opponent from killing you. And I felt pretty good about that card in my defensive deck. That was in the same deck that I was milling people out. The surveil land have come a little bit down on. It depends on your, you know, like colored source requirement and land type requirement. Sometimes you'll play it, but I think usually it's not, it shouldn't be a priority. First impressions on counter spells. They feel reasonable. The format's aggressive enough that it's, you know, a little bit tricky, but there definitely are really valuable things to counter. And I think blue is pretty good at defending itself and playing a bit of a slower game. So uh, I think there will be homes for them. Is the Anul slash Stifle counter good? I played with it. It felt solid. I was the common one for lifelink. I didn't see it in any of my games, but I think that it's a very good body to like put counters on um, and like enchant and stuff the way that I was talking about in the green white decks. I think that if you have ways to pump it up, it's pretty great. And otherwise you could play it if you like really need a blocker, but it's not exciting. Uh, did you see the 4-4 tap two guys for two and a white? Yes, I played with it. It was a little bit clunkier than I was imagining it would be. I think you need to be like pretty dedicated to having like specifically really cheap things to tap to play it for it to be exceptional. Do you see any 15 plus artifact decks? Could those work with multiple colors of prototype cards along with some artifact matters cards? It seems possible. I don't think that I saw any. I ended up like, I had some like blue decks that were playing a lot of artifacts, but mm, I think too many blue spells to actually get to 15 plus. So there are a rough number of hits you have in mind for all the mill three commons. No, but the mill three commons I think are worth talking about a little bit. So there's a cycle of cards that when you play them, you mill three and then they can return a card type from your graveyard to your hand. The blue one, for example, is one and a blue for an O3. Uh, you mill three, and then you can put, I think, an instant or sorcery from your graveyard to your hand. If you don't, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. I think that card's pretty bad because, like, you're hoping to get an O3 and a card. And if you don't, you get a one four. Maybe the one four is better than I'm thinking. I don't know. It's so weird. I'm not sure how, like, I'm not sure how much you should care about the O3 that you get. I don't know. I, I didn't play it, but I guess a 1-4 for 2 is pretty strong, and you can always choose to have that. I might have underestimated that one. The black one that's a 2-3 that mills 3 and can get a creature back felt pretty good. Black is a little bit more likely to have graveyard synergies in general that you can hit for free off of it. And 3-4 four for 4 is okay, and 2-3 get a creature is very good. The white one that gives you a 1-1 one, one flyer or a 2-2 two, two flyer. If you get a 2-2 two, two flyer, I think you're pretty sad. But if you get a 1-1 one, one flyer and a creature, I think it gives you creatures. Then it's pretty great because it's like a nice flying body to put counters on. The red one's a 2-1 that gives you an artifact for 3 mana. I think that one's pretty solid. A 3-2 feels kind of bad if you miss, but it's not that hard to hit. And getting the 2-1 and an artifact feels pretty great. Planes are cheap creature, yeah. And then the green one that gets a land is, I think, I think you mostly only want that one if you have some graveyard synergies. Um, I don't think you need a lot to make it good, but 
you know, it's like a slightly weak Seder Wayfinder. You get a 2-2 if it misses, but it's a little bit more likely to miss. I don't know how much you're really happy about getting a 2-2. I, I think it's fine, but I think you want, like, to be caring about filling your graveyard for it. I think that, uh, overall, I think that they are more, like, playable than amazing. I, I feel like the discourse that I've seen around them slightly overrates them, but I could be wrong. All right, I think that's going to uh, cover it for now. So next week, I will uh, have had a lot of experience with the set. I probably won't have drafted it that much, but I'll have played a lot of sealed with it, and I hope to get some drafts in also. Um, and I'll probably just get straight into uh, whatever archetype I feel most familiar with, and that'll be right around when the set's hitting arena. So pretty far pretty far ahead of schedule here and feeling good about moving into uh, what looks like another really fun set so if anyone's going to be in salt lake city at the magic summit please come say hi and i'll be back next week